We have a president who thinks everything is about him, his tweets, his golf courses, his ego. But I think the we job is about- We have a government about. that works for the rich and the powerful and leaves everyone else behind. It's corruption pure and simple. We the 2020 presidential election is upon us. We got Wall Street nervous. We got the insurance companies And he has not tweeted a word Trump. about me for two reasons. Number one, he knows I'm better at the internet than he is. <laughs> Everywhere we turn, it seems, we're reminded that democracy just might be in peril. They were all perfect. You take a look at that call, it was perfect. We take on the biggest challenge in history, we save the world, and we do it together. Do you think that All I can America say about Iowa is it was an embarrassment, it was a disgrace to the good people of Iowa. But I didn't just come here to end the era of Donald Trump. I'm here to launch the era that must come next. I'm David Thornburg, and this is 20 by 70, the podcast of the Committee of 70 for people who expect more from our local democracy. Because he was being involved in a domestic political errand. Welcome to 2020, Year of the Voter. And everything I do during this, I'm coordinating with White House counsel. There will be no difference between the president's position and our position as to uh, how to handle it. I do not believe we're the dark, angry nation that Donald Trump sees in his tweets in the middle of the night. I don't believe years, we're the nation to rip uh, the It was Donald evil. Trump. It was corrupt. It was dirty cops. Uh, it was leakers and liars. And this should never, ever happen to another president, ever. Wow. Flatline democracy. I'm sitting here at the Kelly Writers House on the Penn campus thinking about the day after the Iowa caucuses, how fragile our democracy seems these days. Joining me is my friend and colleague, Chris Satulo. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, David. It does feel like these are tough times for our democracy. What are the symptoms, Doc? Well, if you talk to people about the 2020 election, um, probably the first emotions expressed are dread and fear. Then we get to anger. Um, and after Iowa last night, just the sort of feeling like, oh, my God. This yeah. was the first Democratic exercise of this seemingly endless primary season, and it turned into utter chaos and a huge black eye for the Democratic Party. Yeah. So the the basic mechanics are in question. Forget all the concern about hyper-partisanship and vitriol and so forth and so on, but even the just the fundamentals, literally moving people around and counting them accurately. Yeah, so an in incident like um, the problems with the app and the hotline and everything that happened in Iowa can be brushed off if they seem like an outlier, but if they speak to an underlying concern that people brought in, I mean, people are worried about the mechanics of the election. Will my vote be counted? Will all the votes be counted properly? Will will the Russians, you know, or somebody, some hackers, get into the machines and alter tallies? I don't ever remember a time, even after Florida and hanging chads and all that, where the fundamentals of can I actually trust the results that were reported to me? Yeah. I don't know when it's ever been deeper among American voters. Yeah. Well, just to layer things on, I spent my morning on the exercise bike watching Adam Schiff's closing statement on the impeachment, uh, which, is a, which is a piece of rhetoric uh, as a closing argument to a jury I thought was masterful. And we're not going to talk about the I word. Right. But, but it makes but, the point. So the fundamentals, the basic mechanics, the foundations of elections and democracy are um, un under question, seem under possibly under threat. And at the highest levels, the superstructure, you know, what we look up to, the Constitution, checks and balances, the fundamental ideals and notions that we think govern our democracy, all of those seem a little shakier now than they did the last time yeah. we elected a president. Yeah. Well, I'm going to suggest in order to defibrillate mm -hmm. democracy, it's time to get the paddles out, put that little paste on, yell clear, and get to the task at hand. And administer CPR and to democracy. And administer CPR for democracy. And David, as a master of acronyms that you are, <laughs> um, with the Committee of 70, you've come up with an acronym that speaks to the moment. Yeah. We uh, are launching 
uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about really all year on this podcast, something called the Campaign for Political Responsibility. Uh, this is how, in our view, uh, we try to defibrillate uh, democracy uh, during this oh-so-important year. And uh, it's not an easy task, but the whole Campaign for Political Responsibility says at the end of the day, the responsibility lies with individual citizens. We can complain about the parties or the media or the social media platforms, but at the end of the day, this is our responsibility. I know you spent a lot of your career mm-hmm. trying to further that that notion, so I, I, don't, I think I'm preaching to the choir. Right. Well, you know, uh, acronyms are good to catch people's attention and sort of um, distill down a goal. People also love lists, and there is a list <laughs> at the heart of the Campaign for Political Responsibility. Yeah. With all apologies to Stephen Covey, who made millions of dollars uh, selling a actually pretty good book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, we have five habits of highly effective citizenship. And I, I want to run through the list, give the play-by-play, and Chris, get your mm-hmm. uh, commentary on each one. Sure. The first is the most basic and one fundamental of the Committee of 70 for all of our 116 years, and that's you be a voter. Not occasionally, not when you feel like it, not when the sun's out, but you're a voter. And I think I'm getting no argument from from you about how fundamentally important that is. Right. Well, in in the work I've done over the years with the uh, PA Project for Civic Engagement, one thing we stressed is that voting is not the sole or singular act of citizenship. It is the capstone of a continuous and perpetual paying of attention and doing the right things. The other four elements of the list uh, speak to some of that. Yeah, it's a portfolio. It's a package. Uh, and, and let me go to number two on the list, which is uh, a really challenging um, uh, one these days, and that's to choose your news wisely. Um, there's such a relentless volume of news that floods all of us. Uh, and I uh, learning to separate the literal wheat from the chaff uh, and to... Uh, Look to non-traditional streams uh, to peer over your neighbor's shoulder and see what that person's uh, listening to or watching is just feels critically important these days. Again, I'm preaching to the choir. Yeah. Well, you know, in military science, they talk about navigating the fog of war. Yes. Uh, as our politics has come to seem, alas, more and more like war with implacable enemies hurling missiles at each other. We also have fog covering the field. Um, It has become dramatically, in a sort of quantum leap way, in the last five years, harder when you just look at your phone or open up your laptop and start looking at information flowing in through your email or through your various social media accounts. It becomes so much harder to figure out is this real? Can yeah. I trust this? You know, how, you know, the, a lot of the gatekeepers and arbiters are gone. And with digital technology, it's so much easier for propaganda and falsehood to ape all the sort of visual characteristics of solid news. It's work, but people are going to have to learn how to do that work and be uh, intentional yeah, about it. And I know you've spent most of your career in the news business. Mm-hmm. Uh, there used to be this charming notion of a news cycle that might last 24 hours or 12 hours or whatever. And now it seems like the news cycle lasts nanoseconds. Right. Uh, and that's that's part of the challenge. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of dancing around from different fields, but there's you know a famous law in economics, Gresham's law, that bad money drives out good, and um, we've gotten to the point where even what should be serious outlets of integrity make far more mistakes because of that acceleration you're talking about. The sense that um, we're not going to have a 24-hour process of fact-checking and making sure we've got it right. We're going to put this out on Twitter now before one of our competitors That's does. right. And there literally isn't time to let ideas or facts settle mm-hmm. and to walk around them and consider uh, where they're coming from and what they mean. And... And, and not only that, there's the reporting, then there are the hot takes, right? Yeah. People immediately saying, well, this is what this means, this is what that means, and other people sort of jumping onto that to show that they're with the cool kids on this one. And um, this velocity that we have now and how fast those things happen is unprecedented yep. in yep. the history of our democracy. So it takes 
some really hard thought and some maybe some unprecedented yeah. steps on the part of citizens. Well, and uh, I want to make it clear that in introducing this CPR uh, for democracy, we're not just stating the problems. We're going to provide you, our listeners, with a set of tools that you can use in each one of these areas to uh, tone up your own uh, uh, effective citizenship. And let me get to the, the third one, which is related to the mm-hmm. Choose Your News Wisely, and that's invite diverse perspectives, which is, is more than just listening to different news outlets or news streams. It it has to do with conversation. Right. And, you know, the more digital technology enables you to live in an information silo, the more critical it becomes to actually break out of the silos IRL, as they say in real life. And a big part of what the Committee of 70 will be involved in, this is a a piece that I'm going to be really very much involved in, is the idea of creating um, face-to-face, possibilities for face-to-face conversation with people of diverse viewpoints. We have a program um, called Can We Talk, which will actually launch in an event for um, college students on the Penn campus next week on February 12th. Um, but we're working with the Free Library of Philadelphia and other partners to hold, um, you know, maybe a couple of dozen of these Can We Talk format um, events where you're getting a chance to sit down at a table with five or six other people. You never met them before. You're going to learn a little bit about them as people. And then you're going to start talking about both values and issues and candidates um, with ground rules and with moderators' presence that will hopefully keep the thing on track and make it a useful experience. And we hope basically you'll leave there with some tips and and skills to live up to this piece of the five habits. Yeah. That um, We're also bringing in some speakers to talk about this. We'll have a, a speaker, Jonathan Haidt, who's one of the experts on that notion that you alluded to, that actually welcoming and dealing with diversity of opinion is the best way to understand your own views, strengthen your own sense of what you believe, and um, actually uh, strengthen your own voice in speaking for what you believe. It's only really fragile, shaky beliefs that can't stand the test of dealing with disagreement right. and criticism. Take your best shot at it. Uh, yeah. Is, is, uh, yeah, take spirit. your best shot, and I might learn something. I'll make yeah. my own views stronger. Yeah. So let's get to number four on the list, uh, which is a, a one that's been fundamental, again, to the Committee of 70 for all of our time, which is to learn how it works. Um, there used to be this thing in this, probably still is in the news business, called explainers, right. which say, you know, how does a bill become a law? This is kind of schoolhouse rock uh, kind of stuff. H- how does the campaign apparatus work? How do I vote? How do I register a complaint with City Hall? Um, you know, why are there some at-large and some uh, district council members? So kind of back to the basics, the building blocks, this is the stuff that you need to know if you're going to be an effective citizen. Right. And the Committee of 70 has always been a leader in that business, and it keeps getting better and better. The uh, election guides and the digital versions and the We Vote program that, David, you've developed, all that um, is around making sure that voters not just vote, but have a chance to make an informed vote and one that um, they've thought about and they, they know um, what the background of the candidates and they understand the moving parts of the issue before they walk into that booth. Yeah. I had a quote pass in front of my eyes last night from Thomas Jefferson, and if I were smart, I would have written it down. Mm-hmm. But it's a very Jeffersonian notion that basically says this whole democracy works if we have people who are engaged and informed. Mm-hmm. If they're not, it doesn't work so well. So, uh, which takes us to number five on the charts, uh, which is also, I think, a a fundamental American habit of effective citizenship, which is all the the four elements on the list notwithstanding, you have to act. And acting in democracy is more than uh, voting, as you said at the outset. Uh, And it's talking to your representatives. It's showing up at your uh, community organization, your civic group, all of the above, right? Right. And uh, I had an interesting conversation with some Penn students teaching a class there. We were sort of talking about this, and it was funny. Um, and I think I was the only person in the room who actually lived through the 60s. Um, but they were sort of looking back at the 60s finally as a time when young people didn't just 
retweet things <laughs> like or things. like things and think they're yeah. I'm virtuous, yeah. um, that they were uh, doing a lot more to sort of put their um, their spirit and sometimes their bodies on the line. Now, I had to go back and tell them, you know, the narrative about the 60s compresses time a little bit. It, it wasn't like everybody was totally woke and running around and, and marching with Martin Luther King back then. But um, it was interesting to me to hear these students say there's way too much phony activism, slacktivism, slacktivism, slacktivism yeah. is called. And it connects back to the, the previous thing you said. If you don't really know how things work, if you don't know how the system works, you're not going to know how to do things that will be effective within the system. And, uh, you know, I think back to um, some of the marches that happened in the, the formation of indivisible chapters after um, the 2016 election. And I think one of the best things indivisible did is they told people, this is how effective citizen action actually works. These are the things you do that your elected representatives will pay attention to. Right. And liking your friend's tweet is not one of them, <laughs> you know. So there are things that really matter and there are things that are just yeah. for show. And I always uh, – when I've I, – I teach at Temple and I've taught at Drexel and, and Penn before that. And I always remind students that anytime you hear an elected official say, a number of people have told me, that number can be quite small in single digits, even one. Mm-hmm. Individual voices matter. And the more personal and authentic um, and, and original and heartfelt, uh, the better. Uh, let me jump in lest my previous statement sounded all too much like OK Boomer saying, oh, these kids today. <laughs> I've thought a lot about it since the uh, the 2016 election. It was the first election of my life where I wasn't a journalist and thus constrained um, in ways that other voters aren't in terms of what I could do, you know, in terms of advocacy or action around elections. Um and I kind of sat there and read Nate Silver, you know, and the Upshot in the Times obsessively um, reading about polls as though I was doing something, you know, like I was spending a lot of time sort of following the election. And when it was done, it was like, and, you know, as for many, the result was surprising to me and, and somewhat disappointing. And I'm like, you just wasted four months of your life digging into polls. Right. <laughs> That's not citizenship. That's right. just handicapping. Yeah. And I felt terrible. So I've sort of this time around vowed that I'm, you know, in the ways that I can with the roles that I have, I'm going to try to do something meaningful to make sure this is a good election, that people feel like they had a choice, they had a voice, and when they went into the polls, they knew what they were doing. That's good. Sounds like a good uh, CPR-related yeah. uh, New Year's resolution. Right. Let me just run through the list one more time just so we have this uh, uh, cemented in, in our heads. First, habit of effective citizenship, be a voter. Second, choose your news wisely. Third, invite diverse perspectives. Four, learn how it works. And five, act. And I should say to our listeners that uh, we've printed these up in an oh-so-handy wallet-sized card with an attractive design. Uh, that uh, we would be happy to uh, send you a couple if you uh, send us an email at bettergov at 70.org. And the idea is that uh, if you feel during the course of your day that democracy is in peril, if you feel that uh, heartbeat diminishing, you can open up your wallet, take out your card, and remind yourself uh, what it means to be an effective citizen. The other thing you can do is listen to this podcast through the course of the year because that list of five that David just uh, ran through again provides the substance of the structure of what the podcast will be exploring this year. That's Helping you do all those five things, particularly giving you that information about how it really works. Yep. And it answers the question, not what just should I know about, but what do I do here? What do I do? I'm just a citizen. And I have to credit our uh, former chair, uh, Brett Perkins uh, from Comcast. Uh, Brett was our our chair uh, the last three years and was a terrific chair. And he kept coming back to this theme. What do I do at the block level, at the city level, as a voter? Uh, So uh, credit Brett with a good deal of inspiration for our uh, campaign for political responsibility. Yeah, I want want to pick up on one of the points um, Brett made, which is it's really important, and we'll try to lay these things out, you know, um, through the various programs and this podcast during the year, to understand that even though there are problems that are huge, there are the first steps you can take at the local level in the neighborhood that are significant. They, 
they form the tributaries that come together, the stream that reaches decision makers in Harrisburg and Washington. So one thing to do is to avoid feeling overwhelmed or despairing. It's all just so big, you know, there's so much big out money. Of my hands. It's out of my hands. That's the really fatal flaw of the ineffectiveness and believing that there's nothing that they can do. Yeah. We'll try to avoid the trap we all fall into is that shaking our fist at those people, they're doing this and they're doing that, uh, and just drag this all back to uh, the individual level. So to uh, go back to 30,000 feet, uh, we, uh, we also brought in some folks uh, in November uh, at our annual event to uh, kind of put our our challenge and opportunity uh, in contest. We have a big annual fundraising luncheon. We had about 650 people at the Bellevue, and we've always had uh, uh, senior uh, national figures, uh, politicians or historians or whatever. And this year we had two uh, excellent speakers uh, who originally we uh, recruited because we wanted to recognize and anticipate two significant anniversaries, really, of, of citizenship. One was the, uh, the anniversary, the 150th anniversary of the 15th Amendment, uh, which was passed during Reconstruction that gave freed slaves the right to vote, a right, we should note, that was not fully realized uh, until the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Act uh, of the mid-60s. And the second anniversary was the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, both of which we are celebrating here in in 2020. So we thought to ourselves, let's think of two terrific um, high-grade speakers uh, to uh, talk about those issues. And oh, by the way, this whole impeachment thing came up, so we wanted to get their take on that. And let me tell you a little bit about the two speakers, and then uh, we'll go to some edited audio of their remarks from the event. Uh, first speaker uh, was Sherilyn uh, Eiffel, uh, who is an American lawyer. Uh, she's a longtime law professor at the University of Maryland and now serves as the president and director of counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which you may know uh, as the the position that Thurgood Marshall uh, served in, in fact, when he founded that organization in 1940. So a hugely influential civil rights organization that's very active on on voting rights uh, and pushing back on any uh, attempts at voter suppression. Uh, the second speaker is uh, Akil Reed Amar, who's an American legal scholar known for his expertise in constitutional law and criminal procedure. He is the Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, uh, and uh, we recognized him, uh, a quote from a, a national news commentator who uh, declaimed him the greatest living constitutional scholar. So uh, we had a terrific conversation with Sherilyn Eiffel, who, by the way, is Gwen Eiffel's cousin. Uh, and Gwen Eiffel, many of you know, was the, uh, the longtime news commentator associated with PBS, who sadly passed away a few years ago, and, uh, and uh, in whose memory a stamp was just issued by the post office. So, uh, and the conversation was moderated by Philadelphia's great Dave Davies, uh, the dean of political reporters here in Philadelphia. So let's give that program a listen, uh, and then we'll come back with a few closing thoughts. Well, David set it up well, so I'm just going to ask you both to give us some initial reflections on where we are as a country. Sherilyn, you've been on the front lines of a lot of the stuff. What do you think? Well, on one hand, I'm, I'm less pessimistic than some because I think we've only been at this a very short time. I only really begin counting true American democracy, I think, at a minimum in 1954 when the Supreme Court decided Brown versus Board of Education and ended legal apartheid in um, a great swath of this country. I could even push it to 1965 because so much of the African-American population was prevented from voting and participating in the political process and being able to exercise <coughs> citizenship in accordance with uh, that wonderful card um, uh, until 1965. So if I start counting from 54, and that's being generous, uh, we've been a democracy for 65 years. That's a really short time. 
And so I think for people who are you know, pearl clutching about the moment that we're in, um, I am uh, dismayed by the moment, but I'm not unduly alarmed in that I think this is a very, very ambitious experiment uh, that is a, de a multiracial democracy on a landmass the size of this country uh, with a constitution that says a lot about some things and a little about others. Um, it's difficult. And we are seeing, I think, at this moment just how fragile it can be and that democracy is not something that you put in a box that's ready-made and you open the box and then you have a democracy. It is constant vigilance and work by the citizenry and that the responsibility of citizenship is the work of democracy. If, if anything comes out of this moment, I hope that people will understand that, that there is no resting on your laurels, especially in a democracy as young as ours is and as hard fought as ours is. I mean, we, the things that we think of that make us proud of this democracy are things that were fought for with lives and blood and sweat and tears. Um, so the moment that we're in is a challenging and difficult one but perhaps not an unexpected one. I want to talk more about the crisis that you see, but let me turn to Akil first. Big picture, where are we? Um, so I want to pick up where Sherilyn left off and just talk about how young we are. Let's go back to Independence Hall, um, Pennsylvania State House. So the day before September 17, 1787, when the Constitution, that's Constitution Day, that's the day the Constitution goes public, what does the world look like the day before that? And the answer is there's democracy in, uh, of any sort, self-government, and basically Britain, to some extent, Switzerland, that's it, and the planet. That's are in the process of losing theirs. Um, and that's not just true of September 16th, 1787. That would be true of September 16th, 1687, and 1587, and all the way back. There are very few democracies in the history of the world. The history of the world um, is the history of kings, emperors, czars, sultans, Mughal lords, tribal chiefs, thugs all. Um, uh, a few ancient demo democracies, much smaller than Philadelphia, um, uh, uh, Periclean Athens, um, uh, uh, people speaking the same language, worshiping the same god or gods, um, uh, common culture and climate, and they aren't able to make a go of it in ancient Athens, democracy that is, or, or Rome had a good long run, but it, it succumbs and becomes an empire um, when it um, actually expands. So that's the world. The world actually, there isn't democracy. And even the ancients didn't put their constitutions to a vote, even when they had democratic constitutions. One person, the lawgiver, handed the law down from on high so long. And then, to borrow a phrase, we, the people of the United States did, in actual fact, ordain and establish a constitution. We put the damn thing to a vote up and down the continent. Um, and that had never been seen before in world history. That's actually the Big Bang. The world actually was, the, your modern world was made here in Philadelphia. Um, because today, when we step way, way back, and I'm as distressed probably as the most distressed of you about some of the stuff that's going on today, but big picture, because I'm an historian, you step way, way back. And democracy, for all its problems in the world today, in many, many places, is still way better off than in 1787 or 1687, or even at the beginning of the last century. There are a billion people in India who govern themselves with free and fair elections, and all of Western Europe and much of Central Europe, and I know it's struggling, and Japan, and that's on the American constitutional model. Free and fair elections and multiple parties alternating in power and rights that judges enforce. So, big picture, well, we're better than 1787. <laughs> okay, then for a hundred years, we have the stain of slavery after uh, four score and seven, after um, uh, that Philadelphia moment. So, that's a huge part of the population that's not included. Um, and then we're going to have a 15th Amendment, which we're going to talk about, and it's not really enforced. And, and women, half the population, don't get to vote really until 1920. Okay. Um, and then, as Sherilyn said, um, women suffrage, women suffrage is enforced, but African American suffrage is not. When, in my lifetime, when we, when you know, I, I, I'm old, but I mean, when I'm born, the places where most African Americans live, they're not being allowed to vote. 
So you're right, actually. Big, big picture, when we step back, um, uh, I would say there has been um, a, a progress. Um, and this is still a very new project. And if we can't make it work, oh, actually, um, we will be at risk of, to bar phrase, losing the last best hope of Earth. Because none of the other democracies are quite the multicultural, multilingual immigrant and immigrant children and grandchildren society that we are. This is the only place in the world where the great great grandchildren of all the other peoples of the world come together. And some of their forebears came in slave ships, and some of them came um, uh, in immigrant experience, and there were some whose forebears were here um, antecedently, Native Americans. But the world is watching. We led the world in 1787. Um, we have some issues today, but big picture, actually, I think we still have reasons to be confident. This is another aspect of fairness in our elections, and that is the campaign finance situation, where it seems now there are virtually no limits on the influence of money in, fair, in federal elections and in many state elections. And I know, Akil, in a conversation with you, you said you felt that the Citizens United decision was properly decided. What about the results? Well, um, you need, it, it, the meme, you know, money in politics is bad, I apologize, I'm going to offend you. That's a stupid meme, okay? You need money in politics, you need money in everything. Politics is important. Money funds elections, don't you see? You know, and money funds a census so you can have a fair election. And, 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 and money funds ballots. And, and so, so the question is, what kind of money and in what way? I draw a sharp distinction, as the Supreme Court has drawn for 50 years, basically, between campaign contributions, which are close to bribery. They're not quite bribery, because they're not money in a candidate's private pocket, but they're money in a candidate's campaign fund that can be used sometimes for private purposes. And there's an issue right now about a congresswoman who may have used that campaign fund for quasi-private purposes. That should be regulated, campaign contributions. But ads, speech, in my view, are actually clean. They're appeals to the electorate, vote for Smith, vote for Jones, and in my view, that's clean money, and that's true even if it comes from, oh, you know, say it with me, gasp, a corporation. You know, because the last time I checked, New York Times is a corporation, and MSNBC is a corporation. These are corporations that I like, actually. You know, and Yale University is a corporation, and they get to endorse people, the New York Times does, um, or um, uh, 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 publish books. Random House is a corporation, and thank God for them, because otherwise I couldn't get my ideas out to the rest of you. So I do sharply distinguish between advertising, which are appeals to citizens, um, and you decide at the end of the day, my fellow citizens, whether you're going to agree with them or not. Um, and Jeb Bush spent $80 million, in, uh, and he got nothing for it. Um, and um, uh, um, uh, Carly Fiorina spent tons of money, and she got nothing for it. And Meg Whitman way outspent Jerry Brown, and people like Jerry Brown better. And Linda McMahon um, ran twice in uh, the, the worldwide wrestling uh, person in, in Connecticut. And the more ads she ran, the more I disliked her. And I got to vote against her on election day. She's pumping money into my state, and I get to vote against her. Is this a great country or what? So I say ads okay, are let clean. Me, uh, let, me, let me turn to Cheryl in here. Uh, yeah, so I disagree. And <laughs> because the issue is actually not about money in politics. I'll agree with the first part. I, I, it's not that there shouldn't be any money in politics. It's about the distortion of the voice. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I've been in these conversations, as some of you might have read, with Facebook over the last year. And, um, you know, I, I came out pretty harshly swinging against uh, Mark Zuckerberg after a speech he gave about um, Facebook's decision not to, not to fact check uh, ads and postings by, by politicians and not to sub submit uh, politicians' ads and postings to their uh, misinformation rules. And he talked about it in the context of the First Amendment and also in the context of the Civil Rights Movement, which did set me off. And so, um, and, I, and I wrote a piece about it because I think, you know, we have to deal with the realities of, of what speech has become and what 
uh, corporate speech has become on, and what the internet does to speech, we are trying to actually maintain a democracy. And the idea is not to ban uh, particular kinds of speech, but the regulation of that speech is precisely what we are supposed to do. Uh, and precisely what was recognized in McConnell, McConnell versus FEC, because we're not just talking about actual corruption, which is what Akhil described, right? Which is somebody you know, raises money for the campaign and they use it for private purposes and so forth. But we are also talking about the distortion of message. We're talking about voices that drown out debate, actually. They don't promote debate. Most of the candidates that you described who spent a lot of money who lost, lost to candidates who spent more money. So in, in, not all of them, but some of them did. And um, we've gotten to a point where money is distorting the debate because uh, uh, candidates can, um, and, and those who support candidates, can distort what the public hears and distort the ability of the public uh, to engage in real debate. Now, you and I may still have platforms in which we are able to address and discuss the issues. But for average, ordinary people who have a right also to participate in the political process and in the marketplace of ideas and to hear disparate ideas, uh, corporate money does distort their ability to participate in that way. And we limit and we limit political speech in all kinds of ways. When you come up to the polling place, you know, we do election protection work, we're outside the polls, there's a place after which you can no longer have signs, right? And it has to be clean as you, you know, some places it's 100 feet, it's 25 feet as you walk up to the polling place. We, we do that for a reason, we recognize that there is a place where we want the voice to stop or where we want the voice to be um, contained in a way that allows for uh, a greater sense of robust democracy. Uh, and so I just think Citizens United was wrongly decided. I don't think it's the only problem. So I think some people have an outsized sense of Citizens United as being the only problem. But I do think it was correctly decided. And the last thing I'll say is the court's sleight of hand in, in, in deciding that they would expand that case to raise this question um, that really was not on the table should be part of the conversation also because as you as we begin you know to as we have time to talk about what's happening in the country right now we do have a court that has a very ag aggressive view of where it wants to go and that was a case that was already argued we expected a decision in June and the court ordered re-argument and said, why don't you also uh, answer this question? Not the question that had been raised by the parties, but the question that the court wanted to have answered because they saw an opportunity to uh, finally overturn McConnell versus FEC. And that's not a, a small part of this conversation. Uh, I, I would love to go further into this, but, but I promise to get us out here on time or close okay. to it. And I have to ask you, um, as two constitutional scholars, as you're watching this impeachment drama unfold, Pick what you want to tell us, but what, what, what issues it's raising, what troubles you, or what encourages you about what you're seeing. Akhil, why don't you go first? Uh, so um, at the end of the day, sovereign citizens have to decide. Suppose, I, I mean, I voted against the fellow with a, um, with a passion, and I'm not going to vote for him this time. Um, but suppose he were impeached, OK? Um, so are you going to get a conviction in the Senate? The impeachment is just in the House of Representatives. And, and if you do get a conviction, um, you have President Mike Pence. Maybe, actually, is that what you want? Um, so, um, but no matter what happens in the impeachment process, we're going to have an election in one year. And I see the impeachment process as best serving a function of getting as much information out there as possible so that my fellow citizens can decide actually what's true, what's false, who's spinning, who's being straight. Um, I tend personally, um, in, in the Clinton affair, I, I didn't love partisan impeachments. Um, if, you, if you don't get both sides um, in the House of Representatives uh, voting for something, it's going to be hard to get people on both sides in the Senate, given it requires two-thirds vote in the Senate, that's going to be a hard thing to do. So Richard Nixon was rightly ousted because members of his own political coalition turned against him. Lowell Weicker, uh, Howard Baker, uh, Fred Thompson, uh, ultimately Barry Goldwater. That's what um, didn't happen to Bill Clinton. People of his own coalition haven't yet turned against, uh, didn't turn against him. That's what hasn't happened yet 
but still might, and won't at all unless we get information out there. And if the Republicans want to stand by their man, that's fine. But then I'm a Democrat. We Democrats have to hold them accountable so for appeal, that and uh, tell the voters. So if, 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 as Democrats consider what to do in the House, conclude there is no prospect of a two-thirds vote in the Senate, they shouldn't proceed. No, they could. Um, but um, I would think the best theory would be, first of all, they could say we vote to censure so that there's a record of history. They could say, actually, we want a trial because there's more information that comes out. But this is more a trial for the election, for, so for, to generate information for the sovereign citizenry than anything else. And that's, so that's getting, actually, people um, uh, 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 ready for the fact that you're not going to get a conviction in the Senate, um, so you which would require like Republicans, okay. unless you have typically you know, Republicans in the House already on board. You could still do it, and, but the idea would be, and that's that both sides get all the information out there that they can. As an educational exercise. Uh, Sherilyn, your thoughts? So I lead a nonpartisan organization, and so um, that's not, the perspective that I come from is not um, a, a partisan one. Um, but what I want to say is that, you know, politics is not the only component of democracy. And I think we are in a democratic moment. Um, and so I can say very uh, clearly that I don't think that uh, impeachment should be contingent on knowing that you're going to get a conviction in the Senate. Um, you know, I was just talking about having to face the modern realities of corporate power and speech, having to face the realities of the internet. We also have to face the realities of the political moment that we're in. What Akhil is describing in which, uh, you know, I was a little kid, eight years old, watching the Watergate hearings, and uh, I, I, it almost gave me the same feeling that you got going to Constitution Hall. I was like, whoa, you can actually, you know, there's a, there's a country that's doing stuff. People are, people are engaged and they're, they're making the government better and anything is possible. Uh, you know, that people are willing to stand together for the country. We are not in that moment now. We actually have a party, uh, unfortunately, that is unwilling, no matter what is revealed, to take this from politics into democracy. And we don't actually have an account of what you do with that moment, which is the moment that we may be facing. You're right, we're not, we don't know yet. But that's the moment that we may be facing. And frankly, the last four years have suggested that's kind of the moment that we're in. What is your responsibility, I would have to ask of the Democrats, at a moment if, when the other side says, we're simply not going to play ball, we dare you. We dare you because we just won't no matter what happens. Should they allow the republic to fall? The answer to me is ob obviously no. And the reason is not only for the political calculation, which I am not in a position to make, but because the other critical component of democracy, the one that worries me every day and that matters to me even more, is the rule of law. And what it's important for people to understand is that the people that I represent are actually watching. They're watching people pretend that they don't know what obstruction of justice is. The people in the communities that I represent get arrested for obstruction of justice for filming the police engaged in brutality. We're watching people pretend that they don't know what it means to witness tamper when people in communities see issues around gangs and gang communication with people, they know exactly what witness tampering is. They know what that text is that threatens you without using language that's an explicit threat. We have people every day for whom the law comes down on them and the inferences never tack in their favor. There's never any confusion about what terms that we're now suggesting are ambiguous mean. I need you to do me a favor though if that were in a transcript from a gang leader in Baltimore, we'd know exactly what that meant. And now we're gonna pretend we don't know what it means. So on the other side of this, whatever happens, impeachment or not impeachment, conviction or not in, uh, conviction, re-election re or not re-election, there is still an entire population that is watching. The, the eight-year-olds are watching, like I was watching Watergate, to figure out who we are. What is this country really about? Okay. Mueller has told us that the president cannot be indicted while in office, that the law can't get him. And yet we have a constitution that says there is a political means of doing so and we stand down from it. And worse, we wring our hands and pretend we don't understand what we're seeing. Most of us in this room are lawyers. We know what we're seeing. And our profession at the most elite levels has been silent. We have not spoken 
to these terrible um, undermining of the rule of law that we have been witnessing. And I believe that on the other side of this, whatever is the outcome, we have some serious repair work to do in our profession. Because the rule of law is the element of democracy that, you know, in that his historical uh, account that Akhil is giving, that also is such a critical part of the American character of democracy. And that's what we need to concern ourselves with and be fighting for. And I don't think that this impeachment process is separate from that. It is very much of a piece. Thank you. I would love to listen to you all. Um, so Sherilyn Eiffel and Akhil Rita Marr joined by our Dave Davies with a fascinating conversation about democracy, significant anniversaries, and the challenge of effective citizenship in 2020. As we said at the outset, we've got uh, an action-packed year planned in this, the year of the voter. Uh, we've got uh, events and forums and uh, things to drop into your inbox. And uh, Chris, I'm really looking forward to uh, the whole onrush of, uh, of events around CPR and around this, the year of the voter. Right. And uh, we'll be giving you tastes of some of the events and some of the other things that are going on on the podcast and also be digging in in series to a number of the sort of issues about the mechanics of, of election, the habits of citizenship that uh, David talked about earlier. Um, yeah, we know we have a couple of things lined up already. Yep. Uh, we're uh, fortunate to be joined by uh, a, a terrific author, Dave Daly, uh, who has written a new book called Unrigged, which is about how citizens are retaking back democracy. And uh, Chris and I spent a lot of time, I guess last fall, talking to him about our signature citizen engagement uh, uh, play uh, uh, draw the Lines PA, and uh, we're expecting that uh, Dave is going to reference that in his talk. Yeah, but his book is really grounds for hope. And, you know, yep. we, we've referenced some of the things, particularly happening at the national level, that have people stressed and a little depressed uh, about the uh, possibilities of democracy. But Dave has traveled the country. He's got a wealth of evidence that at the state level and the local level, citizen action has actually been pushing the rock all the way up the hill. Yep. Um, in a number of different instances. Yep. I mean, it's uh, my understanding is it's a very positive, energizing tone. Uh, we're also going to be visited this spring by a woman named Catherine Gale, who has worked with uh, the renowned uh, corporate strategist at the Harvard Business School, Michael Porter, to diagnose some of the challenges of our American democracy and how some of the reforms, uh, like ranked choice voting or open primaries, can help. Uh, recalibrate and restructure our democracy. So these are the kinds of events that will be uh, open to uh, our audience and to the public. Uh, if you want to make sure that you're on our mailing list, send us a note at bettergov at 70.org, uh, and we'll make sure that you uh, hear all about it. But uh, it's really going to be a, a terrific year. Uh, and along the way, of course, we'll remind you uh, about significant deadlines around the coming primary and the coming uh, general election. We're also rolling out a new feature with this episode. Uh, and we're kind of prime the pump a little bit on that, which is we invite your questions about any aspect of what we've been talking about, uh, the campaign for political responsibility or, or voting or whatever. And I'm going to turn to my friend Chris Satulo to throw out the first pitch uh, on our audience questions. Well, David, as you know, at 70s offices, I have the opportunity to sit next to our super volunteer, Paul Drosch, who is the first line of response to all the different questions people have about elections and how do I do this and where can I find that. He's the man behind our newsletter, too, for yes. which we got a, a lot of good props. Right. And so one thing I've heard in uh, recent weeks because of some activity in Harrisburg, several people have called Paul about, so I'll bring this one up to you is there was some big change to election law in Pennsylvania, and it was kind of complicated, and it, uh, to a degree, in Philadelphia, flew under the radar a little bit. So can, can you talk a bit about that? Sure. Uh, back in October, uh, Governor Wolf and the legislative leadership came together in, I should say, a rare bit of compromise to pass uh, a set of election reforms uh, bundled under Act 77, and that included some funding for voting machines to make sure that we had a secure way to vote, uh, but it also changed some fundamental ways in which the citizens of Pennsylvania get to vote. Uh, 
some of which go back to 1937. So you could say we were probably due for a refresh. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go through those in detail right now because we're actually going to do a, a whole podcast on the changes to our uh, election law down the pike. Uh, but just say this affects things like uh, your ability to vote by mail. We've opened up that process, so it's not just a pure absentee. I'm not going to be there because I'm away on uh, work, uh, but more power to vote by mail. Uh, we've lengthened the time that you have to register to vote and to um, uh, and to turn in your uh, absentee or your mail uh, ballot. And we've also done away with uh, straight ticket voting, which is uh, back in the old days when you could pull one lever and vote for everybody uh, under your party's uh, ticket. And uh, we'll talk about that when we get to it. But uh, these are the most significant changes made to Pennsylvania election law, as I said, since 1937, and largely a good thing. We, we do think this opens up the process. So more to come on that. But thanks for your question. Sure. Keep them coming. Again, if you have a question for this podcast or for the Committee of 70, just send it in to bettergov at 70.org. So that is it for this episode of 20 by 70, the podcast of the Committee of 70 for people who expect more from our local democracy. I'd like to thank our guests this week, Sherilyn Eiffel, Keel Reed Amar, and Dave Davies. Thanks, as always, to the folks at the Wexler Studios here in Kelly Ryder's house on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania, and especially to Zach Cardner, our engineer. Thanks also to Joel Patterson, who produces our podcast, and to everyone at the Committee of 70 who shows up for work every day, ready to make our democracy more robust. If you like the podcast, of course, we invite you to rate us on Apple Podcasts, and it helps new listeners find us. Until next time, I'm David Thornburg, CEO of the Committee of 70, reminding you to expect more Philadelphia.